0: and welcome back to another episode of Nothing Major on Warodi Radio. I am Kate Armstrong. And I am Bella Hales-Bradley. And today, get excited. You know what's coming. We're diving into part two of the abortion saga. But before we dive into all of that, for those of you who don't know, Nothing Major is a show where we, two first-year ANU arts students, discuss social issues inspired by the content of our common major, gender, sexuality and culture studies. Our show aims to make the theory and content of our common major accessible and digestible for you, an everyday audience, and hopefully be able to show you how its important theory applies to us in so many ways every single day. For this episode specifically, we'll be looking at how it applies to us here in Australia. So, without further ado, welcome to Nothing Major. How are you doing today Bells? I know a lot of our listeners have been eager for part two and yes finally it's here. Sorry about that guys. I for one am so excited for part two. Thank you so much to everyone for the fab feedback from part one. We have been loving how engaged you guys have been especially on our sparkling new Instagram and YouTube platforms. You guys finally have been able to see what we look like. You can see our sexy faces. But speaking of these platforms, if you haven't found us over there yet, find us on Instagram and Facebook at the handle at nothingmajorwarony, which you can also plug into YouTube to find video recordings of the show. And as usual, you can head over to our Facebook at at nothing major to find all these links and more ways to interact with the show. Of course, our erratic show release schedule is once again something for which we do apologize. Just know that sometime in the hopefully not too distant future, you'll be able to listen to Nothing Major live on radio 11am on a Friday. Speaking of the show, it's erratic schedule and our overall unorganized nature. If you guys ever have any questions, please be sure to either email us at radionothingmajor@gmail.com, at gmail.com, no gaps and no caps. Or otherwise, you can chuck us a message on Instagram or comment on the Google form to have your say on the show and its content our uncertain publishing schedule will usually allow us to discuss your ideas in the next show but we will always get around to them and we do really love reading them we really do it's really fun to see you guys engage with the show and get your ideas across we and we always promise that we will get around to them eventually speaking of engagement please let us know what you think about our current forms of media what do you like what do you don't we're still playing around with what is and isn't working and would love and appreciate your feedback so immensely Now you mentioned feedback, Bella. One lucky listener managed to get their question on the Google form just in time for us to discuss it on the show today. So what are we tackling? So you guys have thrown us some absolutely fire questions in the past and today has been no exception. So Kate, our lovely listener asked us how much of a say do we think a man in a heterosexual relationship should have in whether his partner should get an abortion? Should he have a say at all? You guys are really testing us. This early in the show, having to deal with such a big and serious question. Ah, my brain doesn't work this fast. It's tough. (laughs) It's really tough. So Kate, as a member of a committed long-term heterosexual relationship, what's your initial answer? Wow, Bella, really calling out my personal life there. But yes, tis true. I can probably speak to this question as a member of relationship group sector people's I think this question is really dependent on a few factors and the nature of the relationship between the two parties involved. But anyway, um, it it depends on the nature of the pregnancy, the relationship of the parent, and the situation in general. Yes, for sure. I don't think it's easy as just saying yes or no, or man 50% say, (laughs) women 50% say, because there are just so many factors which impact this decision. Yeah, 100%. So though our lovely listener specifically asked about heterosexual relationships, we are not under the presumption that everyone in the world is cisgender and that a relationship between a man and a woman is the only arena in which this question may arise. We know that this is just not true as it's not just cis women who access abortion care and it's not just cis men that they enter into relationships with. Exactly. And this has been keystone to our discussions in the abortion saga. It's incredibly important to acknowledge that reproductive services rights are not limited to cis women, and thus it's not solely a women's issue when they're threatened yeah definitely speaking of this is a good time to disclaim that at nothing major we use terms such as men and women where suited these terms are not situated within their traditional binary and reference individuals who may align within or outside of these structures i.e when we say women it encompasses all women and anyone in which a woman aligned experience might resonate or generate an understanding of specific issues that we discuss and it's important that we say that now and not every time we mention each of the terms, because if anything, stressing over-inclusion can accidentally move full circle into exclusion or segregation. Similarly, before we, do- before we dive into answering this question, we want to, as always, provide you guys with a comprehensive content warning in this episode, much like the last. We will be having discussions on abortion rights, and in there, there will be mentions of sexual assault, harassment, and sexual violence, as well as domestic violence. We're also going to bring discussions of religion in today's episode, but we'll pop that disclaimer in a bit further along. This is also a good time to note that when we are tackling listener questions, these are our personal views on the subject, only informed by our subjective opinions on the matter. Exactly. So, Kate, back to the question, what are you thinking? (laughs) So for me, this is a big question. I've been with my partner for quite a long time and we have a very equal relationship. We respect each other's opinions and usually work together in making decisions for us as a pair. But so far in our lives, the most important decision we've had to make for our relationship is probably which IKEA Tupperware we should invest in. I was there, guys, and it was a hell of a debate. The arguments (laughs) from both sides were very strong. What I have to say, you've always got to be educated on your opinion. And I really think that my side of the debate won in that particular instance. But anyway, moving on, abortion, on the other hand, is a really big concern and much bigger than the choice of Ikea Tupperware, funnily enough, Bells. But I think I'm really lucky in having a partner who is very respectful of women's rights, as all men should be, might I add but also very knowledgeable on uh, abortion rights because, you know, he listens to the show and he is someone who respects the, the decision of an abortion is ultimately one for me to make as it concerns my body. It's actually pretty funny. When we were writing the first part of the abortion saga, we were with our two closest male friends, which included Kate's partner. And this was actually a big point of discussion. And we feel super privileged to be able to have had this opportunity to hear their side of the argument. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear their takes, and it actually helped us form an answer to the listener question today. So from my point of view, at least, in a heterosexual relationship, deciding for or against an abortion is ultimately the decision of the woman. It's her body she has to carry and then birth the child. Obviously, anything that doesn't allow the woman to dictate what happens in the situation is going to be foregoing much of her autonomy as a human being. From discussions with my partner, it's clear that men should have a say in this decision. They're allowed to express their opinions, guys, funnily enough, but they are just that, opinions. The woman, on the other hand, fundamentally has a right to the decision. Basically, I'm much the same. Where I personally stand on this issue is is if that the woman who ultimately must carry a pregnancy, birth, and then potentially raise a child expresses her desire to access an abortion, I don't think the man's opinion should be able to stop this. He could express his discontent, but if he forces or coerces or convinces her to continue or alternatively terminate a pregnancy, it forgoes a level of her bodily autonomy, like I said, and her reproductive choice. So what we're going to dive into more deeply today is how the governing and restriction of access to reproductive services acts as an avenue of male control. It's been seen that in some cases, children become a reason for women to forfeit escaping abusive relationships, and a man limiting her partner's access to or decision regarding an abortion could indeed be a way of keeping her within this cycle of domestic violence. But with that being said, each circumstance is going to be vastly different, because despite what we think, straight relationships aren't all the same. (laughs) It's crazy how the world works that way, (laughs) Bells. right like who would have thought but what we're really trying to convey as like a quasi answer to our listeners question is that of course in a heterosexual relationship particularly in a committed one men should most definitely be able to and also feel comfortable to express their opinions on whether or not a pregnancy which they ultimately helped make should or should not be terminated Yeah, exactly. Guys, it takes two to tango, but it only takes one to carry a pregnancy. So it is ultimately the decision of a woman. And with that, Kate, we really have to get a wriggle on, but that (laughs) was a fantastic discussion point and a great way to start off the conversation for today's show. So thank you again to our lovely listener. Yeah, such a good question. How are you guys predicting the questions that we need to integrate into the shows? In fact, I reckon that this question in particular was a really good way to introduce it but we also need to recognize that it was a really heavy topic to start off with Mm -hmm. although that is the nature of discussions on abortion I guess here at Nothing Major, we'd really like you to know that if you disagree with us or if you have a slightly different perspective to what we do, we completely respect that. We're not yes. here to tell you guys what to believe. We're just compiling research and theory and ideas to hopefully help you guys understand better the things that we choose to discuss. Yeah, in fact, we'd love for you guys to tell us what you think about this issue on our Instagram page. Have your say in, on the question via our Insta story. So what do you think? In a heterosexual relationship, how much of a say do you think a man should have in whether his partner should get an abortion? And as always, if you might not feel comfortable doing so, you can submit an answer anonymously on our Google form. Or if you maybe just don't have Instagram, we understand, you're most welcome to chat with us on one of our other platforms. Yeah. Ultimately, discussions of abortion and abortion rights are a big issue within our society. And within this discourse and a discussion of who should have a say, there is no single right answer. You all have a right to your own opinion on the subject, because as we said, everyone and every relationship is different. And we've said it before in other episodes, but we're going to say it again. We think that the best way to form a well-rounded and educated opinion on issues is to engage in these discussions. Go out and do your own research and listen to others. Yeah, for sure. But onwards, the show, Bella. Gosh, we're getting too invested in these questions. You guys are making these shows like 45 minutes long with your fun, spicy, elaborate questions. But (laughs) please do keep them coming. Uh, I don't even think we need to write the show anymore, to be honest, Bella. Like They're giving us the content for a good like few weeks worth of shows. They really are. But for now, Kate, we need to focus on our show. Like, right now, ah! stop it. Let's get talking. Ah, okay, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so what are we doing today, Bells? What is the rundown? Alrighty, guys. So today we're going to be using the discussions of the Texas Abortion Law SB8 from last episode as a springboard to get a little bit deeper into some more of the discourse and theory that surrounds debates of reproductive rights more globally. Okay, so the first thing we have to do if we're going to go global bells is understand what legislation regarding access to abortion looks like outside of Texas. Like in Australia, but also just not America. Obviously, we cannot talk about the whole entire world because there is no way that we could engage you for that long. It would take a while and we have already dedicated a good 10 plus minutes to this introduction of the show and the viewer question. So we're going to keep it quite brief. Can you do the honors to get us started, Bells? So we're actually seeing some real confusing trends emerging globally at the moment. It's being observed that while in some places like Texas, there's being a dramatic regression of abortion rights, while in other places, they're making really positive inroads for access to reproductive rights and services. Like in Mexico, where in a historic step this year, the country's Supreme Court voted to decriminalize abortion at a state level in Veracruz. Uh, unanimously ruling that penalizing abortion is unconstitutional. If you are more curious about what the legislation regarding abortion access looks like around the globe, we would highly recommend taking a look at the interactive map of the world's abortion laws, which was made by the Center for Reproductive Rights. We'll provide a link to this in our sources for this episode. We stumbled across the map while doing our research and it's been a really great comprehensive tool to examine what legal access to abortion looks like in different countries. But we're really not here to talk about other countries. What are we doing today, Kate? We are talking about Australia. Hell yeah, we are. We got there eventually. And what's the next (laughs) step for this episode? Where the hell are we going from here? Okay, so unfortunately, this episode is largely going to discuss Australian politics. So we can understand where and how discussions of abortion and reproductive rights are situated within this. This is a good time to mention that we are going to inevitably discuss religion due to the nature of abortion discourse in the Australian arena, and just the manner in which religious beliefs are used not only by politicians and pro-life activists, but just the general community to promote their agendas. Now we want to make it known that neither of us are religious at this time, so we cannot speak to these religious discourses with anything other than an outsider's perspective. We also want to make it known that when we discuss religious groups who perpetuate certain disagreeable ideals, that we are not attributing this to the belief of that religion monolithically. We want to acknowledge diversity and difference of religious opinion within religions themselves and in the world generally. Those that have used religion as a defense for their political or social motivations, that's what we disagree with, and we'd like to acknowledge that's only a specific sect of their religious belief. Yeah. What we are against here at Nothing Major is when these certain members of certain groups use their beliefs to gov- govern other people's rights. Exactly. Basically, guys, just respect everyone's personal opinions. (laughs) Don't force your opinion on another person and just don't expect them to see the world in the same way that you do. Yeah, it's crazy, but we all have different opinions in this big wide world of ours. So anyway, (laughs) let's lay out a bit of a plan for the show. Stay logical before we get into any of that deeper. So... Number one, we're going to look at abortion rights overall in Australia and how they work. Number two, we're going to look at our, our politicians' views, comments, and abortion discourse in general and how it's been treated over the past 30-ish years. Number three, we're going to look at where do our female politicians come into this? Surely they've had some kind of a say. <laughs> And then for number four, we're going to rein it all back in and we're going to get back to our roots to understand not only how abortion discourse in Australia affects Australians, but how abortion discourse in places like Texas could potentially impact us as well. Yeah, right. So let's get started. I'm going to be honest with you, Bells, and I'm pretty sure that some of our listeners would feel the same. I don't really have a detailed of an idea about what abortion legislation actually is in Australia right now. Well, then, Kate, it's really convenient that we set out in the plan to explain it. So <laughs> abortion is legal in all states and territories in Australia. It's a matter for state legislation. So it varies between them, kind of like in America. But all Kate, quick fire state laws. Let's go. Okay, in the ACT, it is legal with no gestational limits. The only catch is it must be provided by a medical doctor. In New South Wales, it's legal up to 22 weeks upon request and with the approval of two doctors after that time. In Queensland, it's legal upon request up to 22 weeks like New South Wales and with the approval of two doctors after that. In Victoria, it's legal and accessible up to 24 weeks and after that, again, like Queensland and New South Wales with two doctors' approval. In the Northern Territory, it's legal up to 14 weeks and after that, you must get the approval of two doctors after 24 weeks it's illegal unless it's disabled woman's life in wa it's legal up to 20 weeks but you must have a referral from a doctor and after 20 weeks it's very strict and there are restrictions for people under 16 in tasmania it's legal and accessible up to 16 weeks with two doctors appro- approvals being required after that and as of this year south australia in south australia abortion is legal up to 22 weeks and beyond that with two doctors approval so it brings them in line with new south wales and queensland Oh my goodness, I did not realize quite how many states and territories Australia had till we did that rundown. Just imagine if we had to do it for America. Bella, don't even talk about it, please. <laughs> Anyway, now we're all spicy and educated. Let's get a move on. So we're lucky here in Australia with abortion being pretty accessible and legal, but it really wasn't an easy fight to get here. There has been a lot of pushback from our politicians and particular sectors of the general public against these laws, especially because these changes are quite recent. So recent, in fact, that I myself was a big part of the pro-choice rallies in 2018 when a bill was going through Queensland Parliament to decriminalize abortion. Might I say, I'm very proud of you, Bella, for being involved in that. (laughs) Yeah, so it's important to remember that we're not doing much better. We're not in some kind of post-feminist utopia in Australia where we do and have always had access to abortion rights. That's just like not the deal. Exactly. And I think what we really want people to learn from this episode and what I experienced firsthand at some of these protests is that abortion is an incredibly divisive issue in this country. And this country's stance on abortion is vastly not as progressive as some might ostensibly think. Yeah. So Bella, let's start at the top. Scott Morrison, our lovely and devoted prime minister, who is definitely in the country at the moment. He is very open about his religion. He's a Pentecostal Christian. So I'm curious to know what his views are on abortion. Well, Kate, we actually don't really know. Because Scotty is a federal (laughs) MP, he's the prime minister and abortion legislation is a matter for each individual state and territory. He's been pretty reserved when asked about it. Yeah, in fact, in 2019, when he was asked by the press about the New South Wales bill to decriminalise abortion, he said, and I quote, it's not a matter before the Commonwealth Parliament, nor is it one I'm seeking to have brought before the Commonwealth Parliament. Yeah, and he then went on to say that he has what one would describe as conservative views on this issue, as the Australian public knows he has on other issues. He then ended it with, and I quote, that's really all I think I need to say. Yeah, okay, so I guess we could assume that the Australian Prime Minister is not exactly pro-choice, and what's quite ironic is that we feel he's kind of taking the easy route out when staying out of this discourse, because in reality, abortion legislation is not just a states and territories issue, given the amount of federal funding involved. The government can't just brush this issue under the rug. There is a need for publicly funded comprehensive abortion support around Australia, but particularly in rural areas. And as we explored in the last episode, issues of access to reproductive services disproportionately impact women of colour. So it's a particular concern for Indigenous Australians who Scott Morrison is supposed to be representing as well. Yeah, this isn't just a political issue or debate to be had, something that our Prime Minister needs to recognise. He Mm. said, and I paraphrase, that he doesn't find that, that debate about abortion one that tends to unite Australians, and he certainly was not going to engage in the political elements of that discussion because he doesn't think it's good for our country. But Kate, the PM sentiment about staying out of such a divisive issue isn't exactly shared with other politicians, is it? So we've seen a lot of attention drawn to issues of abortion, decriminalisation in Australia, as much of this occurs has occurred in the years from like 2016 to now. So a lot of very well-known politicians like ones that we know about now from both sides of the political debate have entered into this arena and come out to some protests, both for and against these proposed law changes. What we want to bring up is the fact that all the politicians that are against the recent reforms to state abortion legislation, they've justified it as a result of their religious beliefs. So it's pretty safe to presume that the PM who shares a similar conservative religious identity would be the same. Yeah, our very own former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, was introduced at a pro-life rally, which he spoke at back in 2018 as, and I quote, a legend of the conservative movement. What a title. <laughs> what an introduction. I frankly am not looking forward to hear what he had to say. Yeah, I can't say it's the title that I'd like to be introduced <laughs> as, but anyway, let's have political here. So first and foremost, when the New South Wales bill for the decriminalization of abortion was being passed in 2018, Abbott described the bill as effectively infanticide on demand, referring to the crime of a mother killing her child within a year of birth. So he's making out that abortion is just a method for women to kill their children. The reference to infanticide is while false and just very odd is specifically referring to the fact that this bill allowed voluntary abortion up to 22 weeks but it also allowed someone to undergo the procedure after that time provided they had the permission of two doctors. So for context this is the law that is currently in place in New South Wales Queensland and South Australia and it appears in a similar form in the other states. What's important to take away from these comments coming out of our elected officials is that they continue to compare abortion, a fundamental healthcare procedure, to murder. As we mentioned in the last episode, this is just not true. The general consensus from a medical perspective is that a fetus is not a baby. Conflating abortion to deplorable acts like murder is not an uncommon argument, though. In fact, Barnaby Joyce, our current deputy prime minister, the man, the myth, the model of good family values, (laughs) described it as the slavery debate of our time and compared the New South Wales abortion bill to the American slave trade. Oh, my goodness. This is also a good time to point out that as Scott Morrison is currently out of the country at the time of this recording, Mr Joyce is our acting Prime Minister. Mr Joyce's remarks, along with those of other parliamentarians at both state and federal levels, are just insulting and deeply blind to the struggles that people of colour face in this country. Comparing any modern struggle to the trauma enacted upon minorities, which continues to have significant intergenerational impacts to this day, both in these communities and integrated into the very structures of our society, is frankly just inexcusable. Of course, we can't speak to these issues as we are white women living on stolen land. But with the knowledge of our nation's colonial history, it's easy to recognize how disrespectful comment like- comments like these are and that they need to be addressed. People who oppose abortion have every right to do so. What we want to critique and what we want you as a listener to take away from this episode is that they can go about expressing their views in a completely ignorant, unfounded, and frankly, damaging manner. It's damaging that in a lot of this pro-life rhetoric, even when it's spread by public figures that represent us in national parliament. A lot of this rhetoric is false or just blatantly misleading. But Kate, there's more. Well, when speaking of pro-life events against the abortion reform moving through their respective state parliaments, both Barnaby Joyce in New South Wales and Matt Canavan in Queensland claimed that abortion access allowed under the proposed bills would be used as a method of sex selection. Just pointing out that Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan are just two examples. They're not alone in the slew of well-known public figures making this claim. So with modern science, you're able to find out the sex of a fetus as early as 10 weeks, which is just four weeks after the current six-week law in place in Texas, which we have seen collective public outrage towards. So, Kate, doesn't that mean if people wanted to use abortion as a means of terminating a pregnancy based on a desired sex, wouldn't they already be doing it? Yeah, Bella, they would have. This just further shows the dramatisation of this issue by some Australian politicians to the point where they are no longer providing rational or logical arguments to support their point of view. This tactic of fear-mongering is used to inflate and vastly over-politicise what is, as we've said, essentially an issue of healthcare. And what we've seen is that this can be a really powerful tool in altering public perception. This tactic isn't limited to politicians, and it's a common thing used by pro-life groups in their advocacy against free, productive healthcare reform. We've seen these in Australia with the anti-abortion flyers that popped up in Australian letterboxes, with graphic images and disturbing, unfounded claims not only about the bills that were going through their respective parliaments, but also about the abortion process itself. These flyers described the abortion process as tearing a fetus limb from limb, which is not only highly disturbing and blatantly false as it disregards the abortion process being one that is a safe medical procedure, but it is also deeply unnecessary and disrespectful of the abortion process being one that is an incredibly difficult choice for the person involved, both physically and mentally. So whilst we respect that people of some religious beliefs might be against abortion, we just can't accept these arguments and definitely not the idea that they should form the basis of restricting access to abortion in this country. Here at Nothing Major, we don't believe that in a democratic society with a vast array of religions and beliefs, that laws and legislation should be dictated by a specific one. Further, it's damaging to see that A, it's men making these statements, and B, it's on the basis of a religion, which, as we know, is not universal or a monolithic belief system. The separation of church and state in issues like abortion has become increasingly, well less separated even if religion isn't the reason why you're against abortion what we see is that the majority of pro-life organizations are commonly linked to christianity either through funding or direct operation jumping back to america really quickly we've seen how detrimental this inclusion of religion in abortion discourse can be with the establishment of anti-abortion clinics in america now these aren't great and they would thankfully be illegal in australia very thankfully be illegal in australia <laughs> so in texas there are more than 200 crisis pregnancy centers facilities that are aligned with anti-abortion organizations that offer free medical tests and counseling in hopes of dissuading women from terminating their pregnancies australian, t- australian states and territories restrict this kind of behavior and protest protecting of individuals who choose to have an abortion Each state now has a 150-metre safe access zone around abortion clinics, other than in the ACT, which allows the Minister of Health to set a 50-metre exclusion zone for protests. However, these have all only been implemented within the last 10 years, and some have been implemented as early as this year. This kind of anti-abortion sentiment seen in America is extremely detrimental, and it's already a harmful established practice in the country. The protests and misinformation spread by conservative and Christian pro-life organizations can be incredibly damaging to abortion discourse in public rhetoric and also places a totally unnecessary amount of stress Mm -hmm. upon people seeking out these reproductive health services. This integration of religious belief, particularly when it's done in such a harmful and aggressive manner, in the way that we've seen coming from conservative parliamentarians, protests and these pro-life organisations, doesn't, at least I feel personally, lead to constructive debate about abortion legislation. But what if we separate this from religion? Are Australian politicians still being problematic, Bella? Okay, so... We don't feel a need to swear in this podcast as it would be a bit unprofessional and potentially damaging to our credibility. But, Kate, just wait <laughs> until you hear about the absolute travesty that is the Australian politics of abortion. Kate, I want to swear ah. so badly. <laughs> oh my gosh, fella. I know, I know, but we've got to keep it together. Would you perhaps be referring to the wonderful case of the RU486 abortion drug? Indeed, I am. If you weren't aware, RU486 is basically an abortion pill. It offers a non-surgical procedure available within the first nine weeks of pregnancy. Now, after medical checks to determine if someone can qualify for the pill, if they decided to proceed, they would be given the RU486 pill and then another, another pill, misoprostol, I hope I pronounced that correctly, <laughs> to take approximately 24 hours after. This usually brings on heavy cramping and bleeding, which terminates the pregnancy. In essence, IU486 triggers a miscarriage. This can at times be a safer and easier method of abortion than surgical procedures. And the fact that it was not allowed in Australian markets before 2006 is a big issue politically and socially, and one that we haven't really addressed in Australia properly. Wait, Kate, 2006? What happened? Why wouldn't politicians want to give Australians a safer way to access reproductive services? Well, the thing is, the government was pretty sneaky and it kept what happened to keep RU486 off limits to Australians pretty under wraps. Basically, in 1996, Prime Minister John Howard made a secret deal with the staunchly conservative Tasmanian Senator Brian Harradine to vote in favour of the privatisation of Telstra. The only catch was that, in return, the government had to vote with Senator Harradine on the restriction of the RU486 abortion pill. But, Bella, how did they do that? Why are politicians making medical decisions? Well, the way they kept iu 486 out of the Australian medical market was to take the approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, which oversees all drug approvals in this country, and hand it specifically and directly to the health minister, whoever that might be. Yeah, we're just as confused as you guys are. <laughs> they don't quite seem to add up, do they? you know, the basic fundamental medical rights of a woman for Telstra. So basically, in order to access RU486, you had to get specific permission from the federal health minister, which is just vastly unachievable. And that was the point, to make accessing RU486 unachievable. And this change stayed in place from 1996 to 2006. Ten years, guys, an entire decade. And the overturning of this rule was not an easy feat. It was staunchly defended by the men in Parliament House at the time, including the Health Minister Tony Abbott. That year, 2006, the Australian Medical Association had called on the government to remove the restrictions to reflect current medical and clinical opinion of RU486 and to allow a safe and effective alternative to surgical abortion. What ensued in the lead up to this bill being overturned was three days of heated argument in Parliament House. It was described as the biggest row about a drug since the contraceptive pill was introduced in the 1960s. It ended in a rare conscious vote where the MPs in the House of Representatives voted in favour of giving the Therapeutic Goods Administration the power of approval. Subsequently, the federal health minister was stripped of his power to veto the use of the drug, and RU486 became available for the first time in Australia. Ten years after the government traded access to this drug to win an entirely unrelated vote. Now look, as a proud Canberran, I'm a good old fan of the Telstra Tower, but... The RU486 pill, if approved 10 years earlier, is something that could have drastically improved access to a safer way to terminate a pregnancy, keeping in mind that voluntary abortion was still very restricted in 2006. Caroline DeCosta, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Queensland's James Cook University, said that this drug would remove many of the financial, geographical and other factors that had inhibited women's right to choose. But still, the men fought against it. The bill, which led the transferring of power to the TGA regarding RU486, was opposed by many church and pro-life groups and raised fierce public debate. But on a positive note, it was sponsored by a cross-party group of female senators you got to love the ladies sticking together. If you do want to learn more about this, as well as other issues that women in Parliament face, I would highly recommend Annabelle Crabb's new docuseries, Misrepresented, which unpacks the RU486 debate and much more. Highly, highly, highly recommend this show. Guys, go on to iView, go check it out. It's so informative and really interesting. I definitely agree. So, Kate, we've seen that the male politicians in Australia are dominating debates about reproductive rights and the control of abortion services. But could this be different? Could this just be a product of the overly male-dominated political scene? If women were making the rules, would it be better? Yeah, as you may have seen on our Instagram, we posted a cheeky spoiler to the session a while back, Mm. and Bells, the answer is No. So women in powerful positions isn't inherently feminist, guys, especially when they use their power to harm more marginalised women. We don't want you guys to go away thinking that every woman is pro-choice or has to be pro-choice. That is just not the case and there are plenty of women that advocate against abortion legislation and as we discussed religious views dominate abortion discourse and for a lot of people your faith might come first or influence where you sit in this debate yeah and for sure we respect that you have you are all entitled to your own opinion but we have seen this really clearly in the views of our post protagonist Amy Coney Barrett And she provides a great learning curve as to why we need voices other than conservative, upper-class white women in these debates. But Kate, who is Amy Coney Barrett? We don't know her. Okay, Amy Coney Barrett was a Justice on the US Court of Appeals, and in early 2020, she was nominated and subsequently took position as an Associate Justice to the Supreme Court of America. Wait. Like the Supreme Court, the one that we mentioned last episode, didn't block the Texas abortion bill, SBA. Yeah, that same Supreme Court bells. Uh, She's just one of the nine justices that made that decision. Oh, and like she voted to block the bill, right? Like she is a woman. Surely she has to understand how the Texas bill coming into place infringes on her constitutional rights to safe and accessible reproductive health care. Yeah, not quite. So Justice Barrett is a staunch Christian conservative, which makes her extremely popular with the religious right, especially in regards to comments she's made on her legal opinions and remarks on abortion and gay marriage. Oh, sure, but like they're her personal beliefs. There are conservative women in the world, I get that. But surely she's still able to respect that a right to reproductive healthcare is something that other women should be able to access. Yeah, you would freely hope so, wouldn't you? But alas, this is just not the case, despite Mm. Justice Barrett asserting that judges are not policymakers and that she does not impose her personal convictions on the law. Justice Barrett has repeatedly insisted her faith does not compromise her work. However, this has not really been seen to be true in her decisions as a justice so far. Yeah. Now, of course, we do not blame her for her personal views. You're allowed to have your own opinion. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are inevitably influenced by their positions in life, their life experience and understandings. However, we feel it's Ignorant to neglect the understanding of this and its influence on your opinions. You can't just say, no, it doesn't affect me or where I stand. It's naive to think that your position in life has no bearing on your decisions, especially when you're a woman in these powerful positions and these are dictating your ability to let other women access their fundamental rights. Yes. But you might be wondering why we brought this up and still be wondering why it's so impactful. Okay, so when Donald Trump nominated Justice Barrett to the Supreme Court, it was seen as a progressive move in terms of the representation of women in the US judicial system, especially since she was essentially replacing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had recently passed away. What we want to assert by bringing this up is that this is a wholly performative form of commendation, as we're seeing time and time again, especially in relation to SB8, that Justice Barrett is aligning herself with decisions that will undoubtedly harm the women in the country within she practices. Yeah, we say this in acknowledgement of the fact that she herself has claimed she's an originalist, which is the belief that judges should attempt to interpret the words of the Constitution as the authors intended when they were written. However, as we explained in the last episode, the removal of safe and practical access to abortions through the kind of legislation that Justice Barrett is upholding removes the fundamental constitutional rights of a woman to access these services. So it doesn't really show to be upholding the law or the Constitution. Yeah, so those are... There was, of course, also the big irony of her appointment in that she replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a consistent left voter and an advocate and activist for women's rights in the late 20th, early 21st centuries. What we explained last week is that the conservative ideals becoming a majority in the American Supreme Court leaves much up in the air in terms of not only rights to healthcare services like abortion, but also the worrying destabilization of the separation of church and state in what is a supposedly democratic country. But Bells, this show is about Australia, so let's (laughs) talk about some Australian women. (laughs) Yes, yes, okay. Obviously, much of what we said about Justice Barrett can be relayed onto women who align with religious conservatism in Australia. But we wanted to bring up some specific examples just so we can help you understand better. So the first woman we want to bring up is Amanda Stoker, who is a socially conservative Liberal National Party senator from Queensland, and she has publicly declared herself as a proud conservative Christian who believes Christian values are under attack in Australia. Senator Stoker was recently appointed by Scott Morrison into cabinet as the assistant minister for women. And there are a couple of things about this that really fit well into our discussion. So Senator Stoker, much like her male counterparts of the LNP, is known for making appearances at pro-life rallies, and she hasn't shied away from expressing her views on the changes to abortion legislation that have been occurring in the past few years. She's become rather irregular at the March for Life events in Queensland, and that in and of itself is concerning in terms of her portfolio. But in her addresses to these rallies, she brings up many of the standard religious anti-abortion talking points that we talked about earlier. Which, as we said, are just frankly unfounded, damaging, and highly dramatized. She's also voiced her opposition to the 150 meter exclusion zone around abortion clinics, which is in place in most state and territory legislation. And she's arguing that protesters have a right to conduct, quote, respectful conversations and silent prayer. Now, we know that respectful conversations and silent (laughs) prayer are far from what happens at these protests and it's worrying to hear her fighting to uphold the rights of protesters over the rights of Australian women who she represents to access reproductive services safely and free from unnecessary stresses. Having Senator Stoker speak about this so candidly really adds to the stigma of accessing abortion services. And this combined with the proliferation of anti-abortion sentiment that she encourages could lead to women, especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds, avoiding accessing these services in what we know is a safe and professional setting. We think this is just outrageous, basically, that the Assistant Minister for Women is advocating for restrictions or bans on what is simple and safe healthcare for people she is meant to represent. Despite your personal standing in life, despite your personal opinion, when you represent the broader majority of women in Australia, you need to focus on what is best for everyone collectively. Exactly. Dale Kelleher from Children by Choice, which is a Brisbane-based counselling and advocacy group which had a lot to do with the fight to legalise abortion in Queensland in 2018, said about Senator Stoker that she's simply not able to take into account the needs of Australian women and their healthcare in relation to her views. There's a massive inconsistency with her conservative religious views, especially on a women-centric issue like abortion, and her role as Assistant Minister for Women. So she's a woman in a powerful position, but she's being superseded by her views and beliefs. And it's hard to think about how her increased visibility in this position could be an avenue for the manifestation of so much more disadvantage for Australian women. Exactly. But she is not the only woman. Exactly. I was pretty involved in the public fight to decriminalize abortion in Queensland in 2018, and I wanted to bring up a speech that the then LNP leader, yep, so she was the leader of the opposition, Deb Frecklington, made right before the bill was put to a conscience vote in Parliament. So basically, it's a hell of a speech, and we'll link Mm -hmm. it in our sources this week. But there are some specific points that we want to unpack in terms of why, when intersected with other facets of religion and political ideology, some women in powerful positions can be harmful. She framed the new bill as one that would forfeit any hope of protecting women, which is odd, Kate. Frecklington asserted that instead of providing abortion, we should have better services in terms of counseling and better safeguards for women who are coerced into abortions. And we fundamentally agree with mm. this, but I, we don't understand why they should be mutually exclusive things. Like, why is it just one or the other, Bella? We also know from the discussions of the last episode that increasing the safety, availability, and public awareness of access to abortion as a form of healthcare is actually a pretty crucial way to protect women. Yeah, especially those in rural communities, those left vulnerable by domestic or sexual violence, or those without the socioeconomic privileges to access healthcare. Basically, what we want you to come away from this part of the episode is with, is an understanding that women who seek to use their political or religious beliefs to stand in the way of effective access to reproductive care, which is something that will inherently harm more marginalized women than themselves, it's equally as damaging as when their male counterparts do it. As we saw in the RU486 debate, the fundamental right of reproductive health care should be one that unifies politicians. And with that being said, when Australian politicians are overwhelmingly male and the female politicians are overwhelmingly white, the considerations of intersectionality and social disparity that we brought up just now might not be, and usually aren't even considered. And this might not happen until we see Australian politics represent the Australian population. Okay. So, well, A lot has been covered in this episode. <laughs> you, our lovely listeners, have stuck with us for such a long time, and frankly, I'm really confused right now. So I'd be impressed if you weren't. (laughs) So shall we go over everything, Bella? Yes, I'm so confused. Okay, so point one was establishing Australia's abortion legislation and establishing that, well, it's legal and accessible. Yeah, but as point two mentioned, getting this far has not been an easy fight, especially Mm -hmm. with politicians using their religion as a defense for advocating for the implementation and enforcing of discriminatory and restrictive legislation. Side point 2B we slid in there is that religion is not inherently bad, but when it's used to justify laws and standpoints, especially in a country which prides itself on multiculturalism and diversity. However questionable the actual execution of this in Australia, socially and politically, is. It's just ignorant, unfounded, and frankly, it's damaging to advocate the estab- for the establishment of legislature on the basis of the beliefs of one sector of one religion. These laws should allow individuals to choose whether they access these services, not have this decision made for them. Which brings us to point three. Fundamental rights to reproductive health services are not a political bargaining tool. They're not to be used to aid in political discourses as seen in the... D- frankly disturbing case of RU486. What we want to reinforce is that this should be acknowledged as an issue of healthcare, not one of politics, and it should thus be governed as such. And as we established in point four, women in power is not an inherently progressive act. Placing cis conservative female politicians at the forefront of this debate is equally detrimental to any other conservative politician dominating these discourses. We need to recognize that this is not going to increase access for women in marginalized communities. So, Kate, what the hell are we concluding this with? Well, (laughs) what we've established in the wonderful two parts of the abortion saga, America and Australia, is that abortion is a divisive issue. So, we need to link these two parts together. Well, what we know is that the abortion bill in Texas was pushed by conservative Christian men. And we've just unpacked that a concerning sect of our Australian politicians share similar ideologies. Due to our relationship with the US, Australia has been politically influenced in the past by what happens there. So the continual upholding of male supremacy and newfound conservative control in America could potentially fuel the fire on those fights here. And that could be really heavily detrimental. This continues the cycle of social disparity that is a direct result of this issue, as well as many others. So, Kate, I think this is a great time to reel all the way back in at, to the start of this episode, <laughs> where we talked about who should have a say in the discourse that surrounds legislation, discussion, and decision of reproductive health care. What we want to convey with the Abortion Saga series is that this discussion has to be done, A. Respectfully and B, with a wider range of opinions included than currently are. Yes, a wider and more diverse range of opinions than more currently are. Reproductive legislation has acted as an arena for the exercise of male control, both in personal and governmental levels. We're seeing men making this legislation, men voting on this legislation, and men are still dominating public conversation against abortion. And this issue of reproductive health is politicized in a way that similar male issues simply aren't. Mm-hmm. And this is fundamentally a reason why it has manifested such animosity between standpoints. So men need, need to be included in this discourse, but they can't dominate it. And religion and personal ideology should not be involved in the making of legislation and the establishment of abortion rights. The narrative of centuries of male control needs to be superseded by the recognition that men are not the direct consumers of abortion services, nor do they experience the greatest consequence when these services are restricted or removed. Abortion is an issue that encompasses intersections of race, economics, geography, ability, and privilege, and the modern discourse does a total disservice to this fact. So people who access abortion should be at the helm of this issue, but it is not in any way only their issue to discuss. And with that fantastic conclusion (laughs) we are brought to the end of part two of the abortion saga the finale the final word (laughs) why thank you guys for sticking around we're so sorry for how long both parts of this series were we frankly got really invested and slightly carried away (laughs) but we hope you can recognize that this was most definitely time well spent both by us and by you so what do you guys think where do you guys stand? We hope that you found this two-part special informative and educational and that you're feeling prepared to enter abortion discourse with an informed opinion. As always, all research material for today's show will be uploaded to our Facebook page for your viewing pleasure so that maybe you can go into a deeper dive into the content from today's show and you could go down a journal article spiral like we did, but also (laughs) we're uploading it so we can prove that we've actually made informed comments on these issues. Yeah, guys, we promise we know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you want to find out more about Nothing Major or Maroney, follow us at, at NothingMajorWaroni on Facebook and Instagram or find us on Spotify or YouTube. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any comments on this special series, if you want to participate on our show or have any suggestions for us, please don't be afraid to send us an email on radio nothing major at gmail.com. That is radio nothing major at gmail.com. Also, as always, never be afraid to send us a DM on Instagram and interact with our stories, which will hopefully allow us to engage with you guys and get your opinions on the issues we discuss. But unfortunately, that's all you'll have to hear from us today. I have been Kate Armstrong. And I've been Bella Hales Bradley. And as always, we'd like to remind you to stay safe, stay educated, stay sexy. And honestly, if that's the last you wanted to hear from us, it's nothing major. You've been listening to Nothing Major on Rony Radio. See you next time.